you'd open your Bibles this morning to the book of Esther. Uh, you want the, probably the easiest way to find it, if you don't go to Esther very often, is find Psalms, which is pretty easy to find. Just open up your Bible and then back up a couple of books and you'll find yourself in the book of Esther. Esther chapter 1 today. Take a look at this uh, statement that I ran across this past week. It's easy to see God in the miraculous. It's not so easy to see him in the mundane. But that's where most of us live. Those words arrested my attention as I read them this past week. Think about just how opposite those two extremes really are. On the one side, miraculous. On the other side, mundane. And if truth be known... A lot of us, we live mostly on this side, don't we? On the side of the mundane. Rather than burning bushes, uh, we have to go out and be busy about pruning bushes. Uh, Rather than parting the sea, uh, we'd love to just go to the sea. Uh, Instead of manna from heaven, it's a bologna sandwich again. Life is so daily, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Wake up. Clean up, uh, go to work or school, come home, eat, do chores, uh, maybe a little television, a little reading, off to bed, repeat, 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 week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, mundane, routine, monotonous. And perhaps as we live life uh, in that way in so many of our days, We all wonder, where is the miraculous? Another way of saying, perhaps, where is God? Is he present? Is he interested? Is he involved in the mundane parts of life where we end up spending much of our time? Is he God at the PTA? Is he God at the ball field, the classroom? Tomorrow morning, Monday morning, when the alarm goes off again, where is God? Is he present? Does he care? Well, you know the answer just as I do. And uh, we know that we don't have to live like I just described. We don't have to live lives that seem monotonous and mundane, just going through life bored and tired. Uh, We know that he's given us abundant life in Christ, but so many do live that way. And perhaps you do. And perhaps if we're honest, we all do at times. But we must remember something, beloved. We must remember that while we may not see him, God is at work in our world and God is at work in our lives. Though we may not see it, we may not see him. He's at work in our world and he's at work in our individual lives. I bring all this up this morning because we're beginning a new sermon series today on the book of Esther. And we're calling our study, as you saw the title slide up there, for such a time as this, for such a time as this. And that title is taken right from the book. That's actually part of a verse, chapter four, verse 14. Now, you have your Bibles open, I hope, by now to Esther. And I want you to follow along. We're working out of our Bibles today uh, as we go through this passage together. Esther, chapter one. Now, the book of Esther is interesting for many reasons, but especially because we don't see God in it. Now, what I mean by that is we don't see God mentioned in the book. You won't find the name of God anywhere in the book of Esther. Uh, It's just his name's not there. Now, he's there, but you'll have to read very carefully in order to see his working 
and see him present. Pastor Ray Stedman said there's nothing about the story of Esther that is distinctly religious. That is, there's no reference to worship or faith, nor any prophecies of Christ or heaven or hell. And many people wonder why. I mean, this is a book of the Bible and it doesn't mention God specifically. and It doesn't mention heaven or hell or Jesus Christ or prophecies. I mean, how can this be? And he said, the answer, I believe, is that the story of Esther resonates with our own stories, our own experience and in our own lives. It's often hard to see God at work. He often seems invisible and silent and uninvolved. Yet as the story of Esther clearly shows, and we'll see it as we study, even when we cannot see him, he's at work in our lives, arranging the circumstances and the events to accomplish his good and his loving plan for our lives. It's another way of saying that God is sovereign. You see, the book of Esther is all about the providence of. Of God, the providence of God. Now, that's probably not something uh, unless you hang around uh, theology uh, professors or seminary students or whatever. You may not do a lot of discussing uh, of the providence of God. And so I wanted to be able to share with you what does the providence of God mean? So I found my old Bible college textbook, my systematic theology. It was up on the top shelf and I pulled it down. And I blew the dust off the top. And I'm not joking. I literally blew the dust off the top of it. My wife hates when I do that. But she wasn't there, so I did it anyway. And I, and I blew it. And I watched the dust blow off. And I found what it said about the providence of God. So just indulge me a moment. Let me give you just a little snippet of systematic theology. And then we'll try to make it even more plain, okay? Here's what it said. The providence of God is the continuous activity of God. Whereby he makes all the events of the physical, the mental and the moral realms work out his purpose. And this purpose is nothing short of the original design of God and creation. Now, I know that's a lot to take in all at once. You're looking at that and you're trying to process that. Well, let me help you a little bit more. Maybe you like this definition or this description from J. Vernon McGee a little bit better. He said providence is God. At the steering wheel of the universe. That's a good way of picturing it. God at the steering wheel of the universe. He said it's the way God coaches the man who is on second base. Providence means that God is behind the scenes shifting and directing the happenings of the world. Or as we have heard it expressed, God stands in the shadows keeping watch over his own. Or again, and here's a good one. I'm going to write this one down. Providence is the hand of God in the glove of history, the hand of God in the glove of history. And that glove will never move until he moves it. Does that help? Providence is God at the steering wheel of the universe. It's the hand of God in the glove of history. And we may not realize it. We may not understand it. We may not remember it at times. But God is at work and God is in charge and God is sovereign. He is invisible, but he's not uninvolved. He's working. And we're going to see that clearly as we unpack this wonderful Old Testament book of the Bible. Now, the book. Is named, of course, for Esther, the Lady Esther. But understand, she is not the hero or the heroine of the book. God is the hero. He's always the hero. Now, I've got to be honest with you. The first chapter here we're about to study says nothing about Esther. And furthermore, as I've already told you, it says nothing about God. 
And in fact, what we're about to read takes place in the life of a pagan king and a festival and his wife. And if honest, if we were honest today, if we were the ones in charge of assembling the Bible and we read through chapter one, we'd probably even be shocked and wonder, well, why in the world would this chapter even be in the Bible? I mean, how can this godless chapter be? What purpose does it serve? Uh, Well, we have to understand that God is not just filling space here. Uh, This is actually a very key verse, a key, key passage, a key chapter, because it sets the stage for the rest of the story. In fact, what we're about to read, though it seems that God is not present and it seems that we know that Esther is not present in this chapter, it actually paves the way for God to rescue his people and provide the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not completely godless. After all, God will even use man's sin to work out his purpose. Why? Because he is sovereign. The providence of God. God slips his hand into the glove of history. Now, I want to do a little role playing today. And we haven't done this much, but I want you just to stretch yourself a little bit. It's 2016. And so what I want us to do is do a little role playing today. And I want us to try to put ourselves in the story. So I want you to get your sandals on. I want you to get your robe on. And I want us to walk back in history. And to do so, we're going to have to travel all the way back to 482 B.C. 482 B.C. And we're going to go to the Medo-Persian Empire. And we're going to go to Shushan, the capital. And there's a royal feast taking place. Now, listen, we're going to kind of slip in the back door and we're going to hang in the back and just kind of be observers. But walk with me now, if you would, back to 482 B.C., to Medo-Persia, to Shushan, to pick up verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia, Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Now, listen, we've slipped in the back door and I want you to look up and I want you to notice the throne. And I want you to notice the man who's on the throne. That's King Ahasuerus. That's his formal title. Kind of like in some places they would call the leader Pharaoh or Caesar. His real name is Xerxes. Ahasuerus is Xerxes. And as you see there, he reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And so to get your arms wrapped around where we are as we've stepped back in time, in modern day terms, we're talking about the fact that his kingdom included modern day Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Jordan, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, Sudan, Libya, and Arabia. A massive kingdom, a large kingdom that he was reigning over, described as 127 provinces there. Now, though we can't stay for the whole thing, this feast is going to last 180 days. And if you're doing the math, that's six months. This festival, this feast was going to go on for six months. Talk about a party! I mean, we're ready to go after six hours. This was a six month long uh, party, a festival, a feast. 
And the guests probably came and went throughout the six months. But as you look around, you're going to notice, look around, the, the princes and, and the noble people of Persia. And these important people are here at this feast. And the purpose is that as Ahasuerus, he wants to show off. Scholars tell us that uh, this was probably done as Xerxes was laying out his plans to invade Greece. He's going to invade Greece uh, in the spring of 481. And this feast is taking place. And that's important to remember. This feast is taking place is to show his wealth and his strength and his power. And to help them to see, hey, we are somebody. I'm somebody. Let's go get those Greeks. Well, since we're tra- time traveling today, we can move to the end of the six-month feast and pick up the story in verse 5. And when these days were completed, so we've ended up the 180 days, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the guard of the king's palace. There were, now notice the surroundings, beloved, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords. We're out in the garden of the king, it says there in verse 5. And there's blue and linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple over silver rods. And there's marble pillars. Look at the couches. There are couches of gold and silver. Wow. And, And they're sitting on a mosaic pavement of alabaster and Turquoise and white and black marble. And, and notice, notice the serving glasses. It says they serve drinks in golden vessels, and each vessel was different from the other. I mean, not enough just to have golden goblets. They're all different, and they keep serving them in different ones. With royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. Now, you can drink as much as you want. No, you can't. You're Christians and Baptists. But anyway, uh, notice the generosity of the king in accordance to the law that the drinking was not compulsory. You don't have to drink. Uh, I'm not going to drink. You don't drink either. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household. They should do according to each man's pleasure. You see, six months was not enough. He now is going to have this week long feast and he opens up the doors to have the great and small all that are around. You come to this feast and they're out in the garden. And they're there feasting. Now, I know it's hard to get your arms wrapped around this. As you look around, you see golden couches and silver couches and marble pillars and all this grandeur and all this wealth and all this stuff. But I want you to take a moment and I want you to look back again at the king, King Ahasuerus. History reveals a lot about this king. In fact, it reveals a lot about his character. Let me show you what he wrote about himself. He's a key character in this book, so be sure you understand this. Here's what he wrote about himself. I am Xerxes. The great king, the only king, the king of the entire earth, far and near. That's what he said about himself. You see, he suffered from an inferiority complex. He just struggled uh, with his his self-worth, didn't he? I mean, look at what he said. I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of the entire earth, far and near. In fact, Herodotus, a Greek historian who lived just after Uh, The Persian Empire was defeated, wrote that Xerxes was the tallest and most handsome of the Persian kings. He said he was ambitious, he was ruthless, and he was jealous. In fact, let me just give you one episode from history. He told about a time when King Ahasuerus had two bridges built over a river to get his troops across. And they built these bridges, but a storm rose up and destroyed the bridges overnight. Now, King Ahasuerus 
being furious and delusional, the king had a soldier beat the river with a whip 300 times. I mean, he had a soldier. You whip that river. And so he out there whipping it 300 times while other soldiers shouted and cursed the water. And then he also ordered that a pair of shackles be thrown in the river to symbolize his sovereignty over the waters. That I am King Xerxes. Throw shackles in there. And he did all that, but he still failed to cross the river. <laughs> and uh, as final proof of his absolute dominance, says King of Kings, uh, there he had the bridge engineers beheaded. That tells you a little bit about this man. It's important to understand who this man is because he's going to play a key role in the story that we're looking at here. I just want you to get a picture of what a Ahasuerus is really like. Well, look at verse uh, number nine. We're now at the seventh day and the last day of this second feast. I don't know if you're tired of parting by now, but here we are. The seventh and last day. Verse nine. Queen Vashti. Also made a feast. I forgot to tell you, women, you weren't at this feast. You're at Queen Vashti's feast. Okay. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace. So we're out in the garden right now, guys. Ladies, you're in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart. Notice this next phrase. When the heart of the king was merry with wine. That's a nice way of saying what? He was drunk. He commanded the human. Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkas, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king of Hazareris, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. Now, here's what's going on. The king... It's wasted. Is that how they say it? (laughs) But he's not done showing off. He wants to show off one more thing. And he has what they call a trophy wife, Queen Vashti. And he sends these seven. One wasn't enough. He sends seven eunuchs in to tell her to appear before him wearing a royal crown. Now, Bible scholars are somewhat split here. Some see this request that he's asking Queen Vashti to show up in her royal apparel and her royal crown for others to see. And then there are many other scholars who understand this request is that she was supposed to show up wearing just her royal crown. We're not sure. I've read all sorts of things about that. But suffice it to say. Whether it was a request to show up in all of her royal garb or just her royal crown, she said, no, I ain't coming. (laughs) We don't know exactly why she wasn't coming. We don't know exactly why. Maybe she was having a bad day. Maybe she was requested to show up in just her royal crown. I don't know why, but she wasn't coming. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by the eunuchs. Therefore, the king. Now, remember, the king, he's not. Really in his right mind, he's drunk. He was furious and his anger burned within him. Now we're here at this party. We're there. We're all waiting. Do you begin to hear the whispering and the murmuring? Do you begin to see how King Ahasuerus has turned red and there's anger? How dare she not come at the king's command? 
Now, look, the king begins to gather his advisors to him. Look at verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Mimukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti? According to the law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. I mean, think about it here. He's here showing off all of his wealth, all of his power, all of his riches, trying to get them convinced that we're going to go beat those Greeks. And he can't even get his own wife to listen to him. Think about this. How outrageous. How humiliating. How enraging. And in a real way, a King Ahasuerus went from feasting to fuming. And he's hot and he's mad. And now we need to get a plan together to punish Queen Vashti. And here's what his wise men say. A man by the name of Mimukin, he's the spokesman for the group, and he begins to tell the king these things in verse 16. Now, I could just see Mimukin as I read this as a, I don't know, just a snake in the grass type of person. Someone did you give you the heebie-jeebies as he came by you. But anyway, you, you see if you feel the same way. Verse 16. And then you can answer before the king and the princes. I can just hear a hissing in his voice. Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of the king of Hazarerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women. So that they will despise their husband in their eyes when they report. And you just hear him say it. No. Well, the lady said, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she didn't come. I ain't coming either. Verse 18. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes. You remember the rule of the Medes and the Persians so that it will not be altered. That Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all the empire for it is great. All wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. Verse 21. And the reply pleased the king and the princes and the king did according to the word of Mimukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script and to every people in their own language that each man should be. Ma- Here's what it is. Here's the law now. Each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. Now, I almost feel sorry for these guys, but I don't. I mean, they're supposed to be wise men. And here's their counsel to Queen Ahasuerus. Put away Vashti, get somebody to take her place, and command that our wives respect us and obey us. Now, how's that going to work out? <laughs> King Ahasuerus couldn't get his wife to listen to him. Now he's going to order a royal edict that all the wives, you better listen to your husbands. And by the way, you're going to speak the language of your husband, not the other way around. But don't miss the point of the whole story. On the surface, this seems like a royal marriage gone bad. 
And it seems like they're going overboard to restore order to the kingdoms or in their mind, proper order to the kingdom. I mean, this might be the script of a primetime soap opera. Can't you just see it played out on the screen? But listen, God is using all of this. He's going to use all of this for his purpose. Remember that word providence I gave you earlier that I spoke about? The idea that God slips his hand into the glove of history. Providence also has the idea literally of foreseeing, seeing beforehand. We have to remember that God is not bound by time. He sees all at the same time, past, present and future. And so he's not surprised by what's taking place here. He's not surprised at what happens in your life tomorrow or next week or next year. He's not surprised at what's happening in our world. God sees everything all at the same time. He's not bound by time. He's above time. He's transcendent. He's God alone. He knows all things. And God knows there's coming a threat to his chosen people, the Jews. And this is opening the door for that threat to come in. But it's also opening the door, beloved, for deliverance from that threat. And he knows this threat is coming. And God's going to work out all things for his good and his glory and our good, I should say. And he's going to work out all things for his will. And you know what? While this feasting's been going on, this six-month feast and then the seven-day feast has been going on, there's an orphan girl named Esther. And I suppose that through all this, she's just living her life. Nothing miraculous, just mundane. And like everybody else, I'm sure she heard the news because he sent out all these uh, uh, horsemen and these, these uh, uh, decrees. And he told everybody, you know, this law about uh, the women, your doormats. And, and she probably heard all that. And you better obey your husband. And that's what the king said. And you better speak your husband's language and all that. And she probably gave it very little thought. I mean, she wasn't even married at this point. She had no idea that what was taking place in the kingdom was about to change her life. And it was about to change history forever. I mean, she had nothing to do with this. She wasn't involved with this. She didn't know these people. She didn't know all the behind the scenes things going on. But God knew and God was in charge. And God slips his hand in the glove of history. And he begins arranging things and orchestrating things to carry out his will for his honor and his glory. And she had no idea this event. And she heard about this new law and all this was going to pave the way to change her life. But God had a plan and that plan included her. Well, we've got to come back to the future, come back to 2016 and come back to our lives. What does all this mean to us today? How does all this apply to our lives today? I mean, we understand the story now. We understand what's going on uh, with all these uh, things that have been going on there in Medo-Persia. But what about us? Well, I think the best way to process this is to share with you some words that uh, Chuck Swindoll said. He said, don't fall in the trap of thinking that God is asleep when it comes to nations. Or that he is out of touch when it comes to carnal banquets. Or that he sits in heaven wringing his hands when it comes to godless rulers and foolish presidents who make unfair, rash and stupid decisions. He said, mark it down in permanent ink. God is always at work, but his ways are so different from ours. And we quickly jump to false conclusions or either act rashly or get paralyzed in a panic. 
He said and encouraged to take a deep breath and listen to these words from Isaiah. And I share these from Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways or your ways. My ways, says the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. Listen, but it shall accomplish what I please. This is God. What I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. Beloved, God is at work. You may not see it. You may not recognize it. But he's always working out his will in this world. May we rest in this truth that God is sovereign. God is in control. God is a God that slips his hand in the glove of history and carries out his will for his glory and our good. Now, listen, we've just started the story. Don't check out now. Come back next week. We're going to get in the next part. We're going to see how this works and how Esther does this and how God does this through her. And I don't want you to miss seeing God's hand in the glove of history. Father, thank you for your grace and glory, for your providence, for your sovereignty, for your transcendence. Father, we can hardly get our weak and puny minds around your greatness. Well, no, we can't. We can't even grasp hardly any of it. But we're awed by what we've seen so far. Thank you that you're in charge. Thank you that you're in control. Thank you that you're God alone. And no one will stay your hand or say, what doest thou? You will carry out your will. It will be done. And Father, I thank you for the promise. That your word will not return void. Your word is going forth today. May it accomplish your will for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn today. The altar is open. If you need to be saved today. If you need to come pray today. But I chose number 43 on purpose. Because the song talks about the fact that though we cannot always see God's hand at work. He is at work. I think you'll notice that as we sing it. As we praise him. As we close this service. Number 43. As we stand and sing, this is my father's world. Let's stand and sing number 43.